You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. We see idolatry before the flood, when humanity's love for violence and hedonism and lack of love and peace for each other and for God existed. And as a result, God poured out his judgments upon all of mankind in a global catastrophic flood. We see idolatry at the Tower of Babel, where people, when they were told to, like in the beginning, to go out into all the world and take dominion of the earth, thought, you know what? We don't want to do that. Why don't we stick together? Because then we could be more unified and we will build a giant tower all the way to the heavens ourselves. And then nothing that we can do can be stopped. Disobeying the will of God and following their own practical, pragmatic, man-made theology, falling into idolatry rather in the worship and obedience of the one true God. We see that even in the great spiritual fathers, even in Jacob, when he tolerated Rachel's household idol gods that she brought with them when they got married. We see this even during the Exodus. After all of the Israelis, all the Hebrews saw the great works that God did in parting the Red Sea and all of the, the plagues, that there's no doubt that this God, this one true God exists that's more powerful than every other lowercase g God of the Egyptians, of any gods that the earth has created, that humankind has created. But yet still, Aaron fashions a golden calf idol God like the ones that the Egyptians had for the Hebrews right in front of the presence of God himself, right in front of Mount Sinai. Then we see this throughout the judges, how the different people, although they were led by judges who were righteous, continued to fall into idolatry, adopting the worship of the Canaanite idol gods along with their preference for the high places of Asherah and the Asherah Asherah poles over God alone. We see that even in the beginning of the monarchy, in the kings. King Saul, when God no longer would speak to him because of his sin. And instead of going to God and waiting on God and doing what was right in God's eyes, he goes to a medium, a spiritist, a witch, an endor, and consults this witch against God's commands to never consult a spiritist or medium. We even see this in the wisest king and person history has ever known, King Solomon, who before he was king already was adopting the worship style of the Canaanite gods in the beginning of his kingship, worshiping God in the high places, and then in the end of his kingship actually worshiping these Canaanite gods themselves along with the one true God and along with the other gods of his 700 foreign wives in order to placate them. And then, now to where we are at in the story, the time of the kings of the divided monarchy and the beginning of their end, Israel first and then Judah. And one wonders if this pattern will still continue, this cycle of idolatrous sin, where they believe in the one true God and they fall away because they commit idolatry. Now, as for background information, we need to know what were the kings of Israel to do and not to do according to God. So when... Israel and the Hebrews, they decided to have a king. It wasn't something that was just something that they can just make up 
on the way. God has specific rules for Israel on what the king should be like in order so that he would be blessed. And as a result, since the king represented the kingdom, the kingdom of Israel or Judah would be blessed as well. And if this king met all of the qualifications, Israel would be blessed. If this king made only some of the qualifications, Israel would be blessed a little. But if the king didn't make most of these qualifications, there would be a curse upon Israel and upon the king. And we find out that God already knew beforehand, hundreds of years beforehand, that Israel would want a king to replace just the worship or just the following of God, that they wanted a human figure. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 20, Moses writes this about what God taught him about kings. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us, like all the nations around us. Mind you, this is written 500 years before a mention of any king. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. The Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Huh, that's interesting. I thought the point of the king is so that you can have a lot of awesome and amazing horses, right? If you're a king, wouldn't you want the best war horses for yourself to, in order to lead your chariots? But you're not supposed to have great numbers of horses. Verse 17, he must not take many wives. Wait, I thought it was good to be king. You can have as many wives as you want, right? But you must not take many wives. Or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Huh? I thought being a king means that you can have a lot of silver and gold and, and you can be wealthy and powerful, isn't it? Well, you're not to accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests, who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. Wow, being a king in Israel sounds more like being a priest. Uh, okay. And not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law. I thought being a king means that you can consider yourself better than your brothers, right? Because you're the king. Turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. All right, so we see this. These are the things that you're supposed to have in order to truly qualify as a king. Six basic things, six main, very important basic things. The king is to be chosen by God. Number two, the king must be a Hebrew. Makes sense, right? Because this is for a Hebrew nation. Number three, the king must not have a great number of horses or get them from Egypt. Number four, the king must not have many wives. Number five, the king must not have a large amount of silver and gold. And last but not least, the king is to write for himself a copy of the law of Moses, read it, and obey God by it carefully. So these are the qualities that a king must have. And if you just think about it, I think most of you will realize the reason why is because the king is supposed to be a spiritual and righteous person that's not led astray by distractions who still truly follows and depends on God as his source of strength, not on his horses, 
not on his wealth, not on his women or anything else, but it would be the Lord who would guide the king and make the king successful because his full dependency would be on the Lord, God Almighty, not on himself. And if all of these requirements are met, then the king and his descendants will reign a long time, it says, and as a result, Israel will be blessed. And we see this happening. For example, when David was king, he pretty much fulfilled all of these criteria, except maybe for number four. He had nine wives, okay? Nine wives is a lot. But then you compare it to his son Solomon, and you realize when you look through this criteria, he messed up. (laughs) He messed up. Pretty much he got a D when it came to being a great king, although he was the wisest man. Uh, He was chosen by God. He was a Hebrew, yes. Um, He must not have a great number of horses. He did. He did have a great number of horses. The king must not have many wives. Uh, Well, he had 700 of them. Uh, The king must not have a large amount of silver and gold. He stored all of the silver and gold that God gave him. He didn't give it away, so he had a lot. Everything was gold-plated. His palace and the temple must have looked very Trumpian. Um, And he knew the law, but he did not fully obey it and carefully uh, live by it. And we see these things happen. And as a result, David's kingdom was blessed. And you can tell that he spiritually grew, even though he had that altercation with Bathsheba and Uriah and Solomon. You can tell his kingdom going down and down as he got older. And then what happened as a result? The kingdom was divided, primarily because of his sins. Now, part of this law of Moses, including these commands, particularly about idolatry, in the Ten Commandments, we read this in the first of the ten and the second of the ten. And God spoke all of these words in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And this law included a prophecy of what this punishment and blessing would be like if the king and the people of Israel disobey or obey God according to his law. So there's an agreement, there's a covenant relationship between God and the people. If the people would obey in a certain way, God would bless in a certain way. If the people would disobey in a certain way that God did not want, God would curse them in a certain way. This was all part of the covenant that God gave Israel or God made with Israel. So we see what the blessings and curses would be in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And we see this starting in verse 1. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today... The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And what are some of these blessings? Let's skip to verse 7. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction but flee from you in seven. Then all the peoples on the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today. 
to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. Now, this is an interesting point, is that before the Bible turns to the curses that are going to happen, if Israel decides, if the king decides to disobey God in certain ways, the contingency here, or the thing to note here, is the reason why you would disobey God is connected to idolatry, because you are following other gods and serving them. So I want you to keep that in mind, because it will be very relevant as we go through this beginning of the end part of the story. And it continues in verse 15 on the curses. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Your sons and daughters will be given to another nation, and you will wear out your eyes watching for them day after day, powerless to lift a hand. A people that you do not know will eat what your land and labor produce, and you will have nothing but cruel oppression all your days. So you become a slave or vassal state to another nation. The sights you see will drive you mad. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your fathers. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You will become a thing of horror and an object of scorn and ridicule to all the nations where the Lord will drive you. And it doesn't end there. Skipping to verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They will devour the young of your livestock and the crops of your land until you are destroyed. They will leave you no grain, new wine or oil, nor any calves of your herds or lambs of your flocks until you are ruined. They will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. And they will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God is giving you. Because of the suffering that your enemy will inflict on you during the siege, you will eat the fruit of the womb, the flesh of the sons and daughters the Lord your God has given you. Basically, you're going to be so hungry that you're going to desire to eat your own children. The Lord will send you back in ships to Egypt on a journey I said you should never make again. There you will offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but no one will buy you. Now all of these curses, all of these curses begin to happen in its finality at this point of our story in the story. When you read through first and second Kings, you see that the degree of judgment Israel or Judah go through from God primarily correlate with the degree of idolatry the king and the people commit against him. And so if they commit more idolatry, God's judgment is harsher. If they commit less idolatry, God's judgment is still there, but lighter. If they commit no idolatry and follow God all, all the way, then God blesses them. And the duration of the king's kingship is usually related to how little or how much or whether or not at all they commit idolatry. Idolatry is the key to how long they're going to have their kingship and how long they're going to have their kingdom. Now, there are other sins that they commit that God brings up. For example, ignoring the homeless, ignoring the poor, 
not caring for each other, not caring for the slave. But idolatry is the main one that God cares about. It's the one that he is most sensitive to because it's an affront to his identity that a people who is called his own would desire to call another God their own. Now, Israel was judged in finality first, being conquered and taken captive by Assyria in 722 B.C., and Judah was judged in finality much later, being more obedient to God than Israel, but that is for the next part of the story. Now, like I said, in other words, as we read in the previous passages, whenever these kingdoms were faithful to God, they were blessed immensely. But whenever they were unfaithful to him, primarily in the area of idolatry, they were judged by God more or less harshly depending on their level of idolatry. So, for example, there's four levels, one being warm all the way to being hot. Level one, idolatry, the the least sinful. Worshiping Yahweh and including idols as lesser God. So God usually gives more time to this king to repent. Then you get to the orange level, level two idolatry, worshiping Yahweh and including other idols as equals. This is what Solomon did. That he, yes, he worshiped the one true God, but at the end of his life, he started worshiping all the other gods that were not true gods, like they were God himself as equals. Then you get to the red zone, level three idolatry, worship idols and include Yahweh as a lesser God. And then the greatest no-no is level four idolatry, worshiping idols and ignoring or even banning the worship of Yahweh. And you better repent because judgment is imminent. Now, why is idolatry so offensive to God? Have you thought about that? Like, there's all these other sins that, as modern Americans, we consider very offensive. When we see someone commit idolatry, we go, oh, yeah, well, they're Taoist. Oh, they're Buddhist. Oh, they're just doing some ancestor worship. You know, it's nothing, right? And then, but when someone commits adultery, oh, my goodness, you did that to your husband? You did that to your wife? Shame. You know, all of a sudden, you Hester Prynne the person, right? There's an, there's an invisible A on that person. What? You, you're doing illegal drugs? You're actually selling? What's going on? That's wrong. You're, you're a Christian. You shouldn't be doing that, right? But idolatry, oh, you know, they're just, you know, they have a spirit tablet in their home. They're traditional Chinese. Yeah, it's, it's understandable, you know. But I know them. He's a good Christian, or she's a good Christian, right? But in God's perspective, idolatry is the most offensive sin. All of those things are sins, but idolatry, from the Old Testament sense, and arguably a New Testament sense, is the most offensive, So, for example, have you ever seen a high school graduate give appreciation to a total stranger for supporting him or her in the past 18 years of his or her life right in front of their parents, and it wasn't a prank? I mean, if you saw that happen, you'd be like, what is he he doing? What is she doing? Like, you're supposed to appreciate the parents, right? Have you ever seen the bride in a wedding avoid the groom and kiss an unknown wedding crasher when the minister says, you may kiss the bride. And she doesn't know who the person is. It's like, what's going on here? She's crazy. Have you ever heard a son telling his loving elderly father, I don't know you, you're not my father, right after his dad gifts him with a large part of his financial inheritance? I mean, when you see that, you're like, man, that... That son deserves a slap in his face. You know, go and tell your father that you do know him and that you do love him for what he just did for you. If you can 
feel the offense and the strangeness of that after I gave you those three scenarios, you will realize why it's so offensive to God. You see, as I said before in a previous message, God is a, a completely different category than these idols. How, how does an idol exist? A man or a woman must carve that idol from stone or wood or make it through metal. And then you have to fashion that idol in a way where it would look good to you. And then it doesn't talk, it doesn't move, unless you're advanced and you use animatronics, but it just sits there, and then you give that idol your whole entire life, even though you were the one who fashioned it. It's the strangest thing in the world. It's the strangest thing in the world. It would be almost better if you would worship nature, worship a tree, or worship the sun, because there's no way you can create a tree or a sun by your own hands. I mean, can you even create a blade of grass with your own hands? No way. You can't even create a blade of grass. It'd be better if you worshiped a tree or the sun. Of course, don't, because that's sin, right? But we fashion these idols. And then here's God. He's the one that created the entire universe. Before anything existed, any living being here on earth in this universe existed. And guess what? Before the physical universe existed, there was another universe that he had created. The realm of heaven where angels and the heavenly creatures dwell. And guess what? There was a time that that heaven did not exist either. It wasn't as if God and heaven existed all time, eternally, or else heaven would be an eternal competition to God. There was a time when God was just by himself, the triune one deity, and he created the heavens, and then he created the earth. And this is why you can't make something physical to represent him. The only way you can do it is maybe try to do your best to figure out what Jesus looked like because he came in the form of a human being. But God in all his glory, there's no way you can fashion an idol out of God because he is before the physical universe. He is before even the heavenly spiritual universe. He is I am. I am that I am. There's no way. Even if you paint him like a sun with the brightness around him. That already is idolatry because just one sun? And what, what class of a star is this sun also? Like, let's say it's the largest class star, okay? Only one? You know how many stars there are in the universe? Billions. Okay, we'll, we'll paint billions. He's greater than that. He was here before any of the stars were around. Let's paint heaven. You can't. You don't know. Because unless you were there and you came back, maybe we can get that kid who came back, right? What was that book called? I came, I, uh, back from Heaven or whatever? You know? Heaven's for real. There you go. I, I, I agree with him. Heaven is for real. Like, okay. And then even when you do, you can't because it's so much more than what the kid can describe. There's no way you can quantify God into a physical form. There's no way. So, again, it's offensive to him when you worship an idol because that's not the one who created you and gave you life. And it's illogical to even do so because you can't. You can't quantify the greatness 
and the glory of God, even if you built an idol that was as big as a star. There's, it's impossible. It's impossible. And this is why in Exodus 34, 14, the Bible says, do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God loves you so passionately. He's jealous for you, and he's jealous for your attention just to him when it comes to your spiritual worship. Now, what kind of idols during the time of kings competed with God so much that the kings would worship them? What, what kind of idols were these during the divided monarchy? Well, in order of popularity, there's three main ones. There were more than, than three, but these were the three main ones that you read over and over again in the New Testament and even a few times in the New Testament. First, there was the idol or the god, lesser G, called Asherah or Ashtoreth. She is the Canaanite mother goddess of fertility and love. You know, Ashtoreth, it sounds a lot like Ishtar, right, from where we get the word Easter, right? So, they, they, when you look at the Middle Eastern gods, they all are the same, but then they take different forms throughout history, and they borrow from one another. But she was worshipped in the high places of Israel, so whenever you would read, and Solomon uh, failed to take down the high places, or Joash took down the high places, those were places to worship Asherah. Took the form of women and symbolized by a pole called the Asherah pole which represented the male genitalia, was considered God's wife, okay? And so you can see how, how if the Jews became very, very fleshly and decided to leave God and try to use their pragmatic mind to figure out the worship of God, well, God, if God is a father, then there must be a mother. So it must be Asherah, right? This is God's wife. And usually worshiped by ritual sexual prostitution. And so the way they would worship Asherah and the way they would worship Baal, Baal is that they would have prostitutes, religious temple prostitutes, male and female, and they would have sex with them in order to show the cycle of reproduction. And as they did that, it was believed that then the gods would recognize that and then do the same for their crops, that there would be reproduction for the crops, that the crops would grow, the sheep would grow, and then all the cattle would then reproduce more and more. So here's an example of uh, Asherah in the Bible. He's mentioned many times, but during King Rehoboam's reign in 1 Kings 14, verse 22, Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, remember Judah is the southern kingdom. Israel is the northern kingdom. Now, when I mention the word Israel, most of the time I mean that generically, meaning both the north and the south. The Bible does that too. But when I mention Judah, that specifically means the southern kingdom. Okay? And when I mention Israel, specifically meaning the northern kingdom, I'll let you know. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than their fathers had done. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones, and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. The second idol that was very popular in Canaan that the Israel and Israelite and Judaic kings would fall into in their worship was Baal. 
And Baal was the Canaanite god of the sun, storms, agriculture, and also fertility. Took the form of a slender man. <laughs> I, knew, I knew that section would laugh, slender man. <laughs> but it seriously, truthfully is. Uh, usually worshipped alongside Asherah by ritual sexual prostitution. An example that we find in the Bible of Baal is Numbers 25, verse 1 to 3. While Israel was staying in Shittim, yes, this, is, this, this word is allowed in the Bible, the men began to, Shittim is a place near the Dead Sea, by the way, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifice to their gods. The people ate and bowed before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. And you guys know why the Lord's anger burned against them? Because of the covenant stipulations that he gave them in the Mosaic law that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, notice this, that we're in numbers here. Right now, in the story, we're in Kings. Numbers is over 500 years before where we are at right now. And they were trying, being tempted and struggling with this foreign god Baal back then. So this is a very, very old deity that they had trouble in terms of figuring out how to worship God first. And Baal was always tempting them to worship himself, another god. They were always tempted by the foreign gods around them. He's still around after 500 years. And third, probably the least popular but the most grotesque and offensive is Molech, the Canaanite god of child sacrifice. This god took the form of a large humanoid ox with hands outstretched and a carved out stomach, both of which were heated by fire for the worship sacrifice ritual for the baby or for the child. And so back then, this was their form of abortion. They would have an unwanted child and they could justify giving that unwanted child up for death by saying, this is my religious sacrifice to Molech. And they would sacrifice the child in the fires of Molech. And again, we see Molech referred to hundreds of years before even the time of the kings in our story in Leviticus 20, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Any Israelite or any alien living in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech must be put to death. The people of the community are to stone him. I will set my face against that man, and I will cut him off from his people. For by giving his children to Molech, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. And by the way, that was one thing that made the Hebrews different from all of the cultures around them is that they did not practice child sacrifice, whereas the majority of the nations around them did practice child sacrifice as part of their religious worship. Now that we know the nature of these three competing gods to Yahweh, God, you can see why God found Israel's idolatry, again, so offensive. So here's the record of idolatry against God during the time of the kings by Israel and Judah. All right, so let's start with Israel first. Do we see in the fourth category of whether he, they were good or bad, they had 19 kings. How many of them were good? 
None of them. <laughs> They're all bad, okay? Jeroboam, bad. Nadab, bad. Baasha, bad, bad, bad. All the way down to Hosea, bad. And notice that the covenant promise of either blessing or curse, of having a long reign or a short reign, depending on their sinful idolatry, was true. The reign of the Israeli kings were, for the most part, shorter. I mean, look at number 15, Shalom. One month. What's going on here? One month? I mean, at least Zechariah got six months. So, you know, he's probably thinking, oh man, this is really bad. I only reigned for six months. But then, oh, you know, he wished that the prophet Hosea came to him and said, don't worry, the next one's only going to be one month. Oh, okay, good. And then 10 years. Oh, man, dang. Okay, that's something to, to have to beat. But then look at the good kings of Judah. Now, Judah wasn't that great either. They only had 40% of their kings truly obey God, get rid of the idolatry in the land, and truly worship God fully. But when they were good, man, they lasted long. Asa, 41 years. Joash, number eight, 40 years. Azariah, number 10, 52 years. Hezekiah, 29 years. All of these good kings that they had, but of course they had their fill of bad kings um, as well. But you can see how pernicious idolatry was in the time of the kings. And this is why Israel first and then Judah was judged, conquered, and taken captive by another nation according to the stipulations of God's covenant relationship with Israel through the relationship that he, that he had with Moses and then Abraham and on and on. And in 722 BC, the northern kingdom falls into Assyrian captivity and they mostly get deported to Assyria. Now, again, when we look at the kings of Judah, here's a different chart that we see. We see that there were four revivals that occurred during the time of the nation of Judah. Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, Josiah. Um, although there may not have been revivals, there were good kings too. But unfortunately, the majority of the kings were evil. Um, and we're not, I'm not going to get into this because this is for next week, but we'll be talking about Judah more for next week. Now, Again, many people, when they read this, they go, man, God is a judging God. God is holy, and you don't want to get to know him really well because he's mean. He'll just judge you, and, and you're gone. I mean, look at, what, look at Deuteronomy 28. But if you notice, in Israel, God doesn't just judge you right there and destroy you and, and allow you to be captured by another nation and kill you right there. He gives you so many chances. He gave Israel... 19 kings. All of them were bad. He could have just judged them in the first one according to the stipulations of the covenant law that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 28, but he didn't. He gave them 19 chances, 250 years to get it right before final judgment from God towards that nation. And we see the long-suffering, the patience, the mercy, and the love of God here. He was even more patient with Israel during this time than with Israel during the time of the judges. Remember during the time of judges, you have that sin cycle where the people would have to first call upon God. God, we've sinned against you. 
please save us, then God would raise up a judge to save them. During this time in Israel, there were times where during a king, they didn't come back to God, and the king died. And then it says specifically in the scripture that, but God showed mercy towards Israel because of the relationship that he had with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then David. And because these people were of that group of people, God showed long-suffering towards them. Sometimes, yeah, they repented, but the majority of times they didn't even repent, and God still allowed them to exist for 250 years, 19 chances. And if that is the God of the Old Testament, and the Old Testament God is the same as the New Testament God, we know that he is gracious and merciful and forgiving to us as well. Now the question then comes to us today. Does God continue to judge and bless nations today or just individuals? Now this is a hot topic amongst theologians, probably not amongst you know, regular people because when I hang out with you, whether you're old or young, rarely do I find you guys talking about this and you don't debate this. But then sometimes it'll come up and it usually will come up with verses like 2 Chronicles 7.14. You know, America's got to get back to God because it says, if my people are called by my name, they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and I will heal their land. I will bless them and I will allow rain to come pouring upon them. Again, look, rain is pouring upon us right now, right? And then we forget, oh, wait a minute. That's talking about Israel. It's not talking about the U.S. Unless you think U.S. is the new Israel, right? But that's another topic together. But Often we, we don't even think about this, but we need to think about this because it's germane to our topic today. If he judged Israel and blessed them or judged them according to aspects of his covenant law, does he still judge nations that are not Israel, like China, like the United States, like Taiwan, or other places that we may or may not come from? So scripture seems to show that God does not hold every nation to the same covenant standard as Israel, as the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants were specific to Israel. So we have to remember that when God was giving his covenant to Israel, it was to Israel. It wasn't to China. It wasn't to the Native Americans. It was to Israel. Now, but even after saying that, We see that God still holds nations accountable to his general moral law, meaning those laws in effect before, outside, and after the formation of Israel. Now, here's the hard part. What are those laws? And it's tricky to figure out what those laws are because for the most part, when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, it concerns itself with the nation of Israel. And then in the New Testament, Israel and then the Gentiles under a new covenant which is under Christ, right? And it doesn't really talk too much about, well, what about nations that are not Israel, like Rome? What about Rome? What about the Hittite nation? What about the Parthians? What about the Qing dynasty, which was around during that time, right? Like, how how does God see them? But we see little snippets that God does have some sort of an accountability relationship, or the nations have an accountability relationship to God, or at least that's how God sees it. We see examples of this law and some sort of accountability to God in action after the fall of Adam and Eve outside of the covenants and even in the New Testament. So, for example, before any part of the Bible was written, there was the murder 
of Abel, right? The whole story of Cain and Abel. And it's obvious that murder is a sin, right? So they knew that. Humanity before the flood, we see that the love of violence is sin. Hedonism is sin. Not acknowledging God as judge is sin, right? He even, God even talked about the rainbow, what that signifies. The rainbow is a symbol that God will never judge the earth again with the global a deluge with a global flood. So by him just saying that means that there is already a certain moral law of accountability there. Sodom and Gomorrah, we find out that homosexuality is sin before anything is written about homosexuality in the law. Lot and his daughters, incest is sin. It's, it's, it's portrayed very negatively. I mean, they have to get a lot drunk in order for this to happen. It wasn't as if incest was okay because they didn't know about the law. You know, oh yeah, you know, we need to have more children. Let's just do incest, right? Uh, no, like they had to get him drunk in order to, to make this happen. So we know it was wrong. The nation of the Amorites, God himself in Genesis fifteen sixteen says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, uh, back to the promised land. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So in Genesis, we see that God is talking about another nation, not the Hebrew nation, and talking about how there is a certain synometer that they haven't reached yet, but once they reach that, then you're going to come back and you're going to be the ones to drive that nation out. Um, and there are many other Old Testament examples. In the New Testament, Paul in Romans says this, that governing authorities are ordained by God, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. Okay, so if governing authorities are ordained by God, then that means God has something to do with politics, right? Something to do with governments. Acts chapter 17, verse 26, Paul writes, from one man, or Luke writes, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. So again, from one man, he made every nation of men, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. So there's something going on here in, in that there is a certain moral law and accountability to God, if not just if you're an individual, but if you're a nation. And so, yes, God does judge nations today according to their gen general spirituality and morality, but not by the specific covenant standards of Israel. And for individuals, we already know that God judges us according to our response to the gospel of Jesus. Now, here's the interesting thing. There is the possibility that one of the reasons we are called to evangelize and to make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28, verse 19, is to bring the gospel of grace to these nations in order that they may escape judgment and destruction by God. If the nation accepts the gospel before final judgment in the second coming. Because we know through our study of history even now that there are entire nations who have legally either rejected or accepted the gospel. We know China even now and in history rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ during the communist revolution. Russia, when they were still around, uh, same way. There are many nations in Africa, I guess you can say America is one of them, who accepts legally the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can argue this, although there's debate about it, that those countries who legally accept and even propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ have lasted longer 
than the countries who were against it, and fare much better than the countries who are against it. And perhaps it is the blessing of God that is upon these countries uh, rather than against uh, these countries through a curse. Matthew 24, verse 14 says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Maybe this is God trying to give grace to all the nations, that although he could come and judge us anytime he wants, he's giving a chance for all nations and people groups to hear the gospel first so that they can have the grace of God before final judgment. And we are the ones to give it to them. We're the ones to do that as Christians. Now, how are we individually to to respond to idolatry? We read it in the story of the kings, and now we come to us. What are we going to do with this? Now, we know that the perniciousness of idolatry spans from Adam and Eve all the way till today. Literal idolatry is alive and well in our time. Not just in second and third world countries. A lot of times we think it's the second and third world countries have it, but in first world countries as well. And where literal idolatry is absent in America, indirect idolatry, for example, a person or thing that is worshipped alongside the place of God is alive and well today. So, for example, when's the last time you went to Taiwan or Hong Kong or Japan or Korea and went to a temple and prayed to a god there. That's literal idolatry. That's a sin. These are some pictures from Taiwan. And this is what they actually, whenever I go to Taiwan, I see this happening all the time, right next to the Mercedes-Benz and, 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 the, and the different Beamers that are out there. You see these people with these old-fashioned but really luxurious uh, religious artifacts and boxes holding their god one of their gods. And this is a celebration of the, of the goddess Mazu, which is the sea goddess uh, in Taiwan. And they literally will have a procession where they will carry Mazu to different cities, blessing the city with her presence. And sometimes they will even have a party with a different Taoist god to meet Mazu, and then they'll celebrate that together. So I was in uh, Lugan, and I was looking at this, and I was like, this, is, this looks so ridiculous, okay? I'm sure to them it's very serious, but here they are carrying Mazu, and then they have another deity, another god, lesser case G, carrying that, and then these two processions meet together, and then they go together into the hallway, and they have a feast together. And then Mazu's there, and then the other god is there, and they're looking at each other. And I'm like, so do they talk? Do they hang out? Like, what, what's what's going on, and they celebrate this, and, and they do it seriously with fanfare, loud noises, the, all the food, everything is, is, is all glammed up. We see in the second picture them worshiping and praying to Mazu. We see them, people just, need, just touching the box of Mazu in order to get a, a blessing. And then we see the spear tablets, for those of that, that don't know, in, in people actually believe that part of the spirit of the deceased person actually lives in these tablets and that they are to be worshipped in order to gain blessings for today and also that you would offer different types of food and even death money to them in order so that their afterlife would be better. So idolatry is a lot, and this is, this is today. 
This is not a long time ago. This is today in a first world country in Taiwan. And then we see another god right there, Guangong, right? The legendary general of Liu Bei during the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, who was deified 400 years later in, a, in another dynasty. And now he's the god of war and the god of loyalty and friendship. And I love that picture because you see that really nice car right in front of this really opulent tradition-looking, traditional-looking temple. But people are there getting out of their Mercedes and, and asking for blessings from Guangdong. Now, this may seem far away, but it's actually not. It's here in Southern California. In Monrovia, near where the place where I grew up, they have a temple to meditate and reflect and worship the goddess Guangying. Guangying is a goddess who, uh, it's a Buddhist goddess who obtained bodhisattva status. And bodhisattva status means that she became another enlightened person to the status and level of Buddha. And if you go there and reflect uh, with her teachings in mind and Buddha's teachings in mind, because she's a Buddha as well, you will then be closer to enlightenment. And then you have the Shilai Temple in Hacienda Heights, one of the largest temples in the United States, uh, with all of these idols of different gods, um, Buddha included. And guess what? When I went there, when I was at Talbot, we, took, um, we had to go there because of missions class. They the reason why they're so popular is because they copy us. They don't copy our theology or content. It's Buddhist through and through, but they copy our methods. When I went there on, sun on Sunday, they had Buddhist Bible classes, right? Well, they don't call it Bible, but it's Buddhist study groups. And they even have a newcomer's class for visitors like us. And we all get around. Instead of, instead of a priest or an elder, they call themselves venerables, these monks. And then after the study groups, we were invited to go to their, not worship service, but their chanting service, where we can chant to Buddha or one of the different gods. And after that, you can have a vegetarian lunch. Does that sound familiar? Okay. And not only that, they had Buddhist youth groups and groups of different ages that met there and at different families' homes. Does that sound familiar? They had Buddhist summer retreat. They had Shilai winter retreats. And then, learning from the Mormons, they have Buddhist Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts also. And you know what? It's a backhanded compliment towards us. Why? Because they know it works, right? The evangelical church method works, and they, they copy it. But then they, they, but of course, they don't let go of their Buddhist beliefs. But it's alive and well here today, idolatry. And how about all of the restaurants that we go to that are Chinese, right? If we're restaurant owners, do we put a cross, a dove, or a scripture verse up as our sign of blessing? Or do we put man-made idols up? Okay, there's Guangdong again. There's Buddha right in the center, right? They're almost like... That's a temple right there, but of course it's a restaurant. And for those of us who really aren't into physical idols, what about our indirect idolatry? Is our entertainment and portable devices more important to us than God? Are we doing this all the time? And it's time to pray, or it's time to worship the Lord, or it's time to do devotions. You can easily press Bible, but you don't. You just your life is so enthralled by all of the different entertaining news that you see or, or different games that you're playing or different apps or music. And it's not even worship music. You're just going through, through it. You're so enthralled by 
this thing called smartphone, right? Is it, you know, and, and before it was the TV in the center of the biggest room in the house and everyone just sits around it and eats by it and watches it enthralled and oh we have to go to church oh you know I can't because you know Super Bowl yeah and enthralled by it speaking about Super Bowl how about sports statics statistics athletes that we love do we find ourselves more passionate about these things these sports and people than about Christ and look at the arena yeah we worship basketball right lifting our hands in worship what about wealth status power the old three do we depend on these to fulfill us in life or do we depend on god for our satisfaction and contentment i'm serious when we want to feel secure do we first look at our bank account and hope that there's a, a big pot of money in our bank account or do we turn to god and realize that it's because God is sovereign and he's in control that we can be satisfied and feel content about life, or is it only when we have a big, giant bank account? And that will tell you who's your real God, right? Matthew six twenty four. no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, the list can go on and on, but the question is, who do you really worship in your life? And I'm going to give you two suggestions. Follow the example of one of Judah's godly kings, Hezekiah. Remove your idols and replace them with the one true God. And that's what he did. In 2 Kings 18, 1-12, Hezekiah's father rebelled against the Lord and allied himself with Assyria. And he even started using the worship practices of the Assyrian gods, he even came to the high priest and told him to change the way that they would worship the one true God in the method of the Assyrians. And so Hezekiah had a choice to make. Was he going to follow in that direction or, he was going to, or was he going to go back and do the right thing according to the law that God had given them? And in respect to time, I'll just read the boldface places in verse 3. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 6. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. And then we see in verse 9 to 12 that Israel did not do that. Instead, they kept worshiping idols, and they were taken over in 722 B.C. by Assyria, captured, conquered, and taken captive back to Assyria. Second of all, follow the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. Repent from your idols, whether they be literal or indirect, and turn to Jesus Christ, who is the one true God. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15 says this, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the good news. 
Acts 20, verse 20 to 21, Paul speaking here. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Are you tempted by the idols in your life, whether it be a literal idol or an indirect idol? Is it causing you to fall and stumble and go against the one true God, go against Jesus Christ? I want to give you a chance right now to rededicate your life to God. And let's spend some time in prayer as we do so before we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.